The following sermon is presented by Maranatha Bible Church of Comstock Park, Michigan. For more information, go to mbcmi.org. Isaiah chapter 6. And I just want to let you know what we're doing. We are going to get to Isaiah 6. I want to read it to kick off our time. But we are going to spend the vast majority of our time looking at the context of Isaiah 6. So for some of you that uh, are outline-oriented and you're keeping track of time and, and all of a sudden you're watching the time go by, don't worry. The, the first point is 80%, okay? The, the second point is 20%, and I think you will see um, in this well-known passage why we are looking at it this way. But Isaiah chapter 6. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty, and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. Then I said, woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand which he had taken from the altar with tongs, he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips and your iniquity is taken away and your sin is forgiven. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And I said, Here I am, send me. He said, Go and tell this people, Keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull, their eyes dim. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. Then I said, Lord, how long? And he answered, Until cities are devastated and without inhabitant, houses are without people, and the land is utterly desolate. The Lord has removed men from far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. Yet there will be a tenth portion in it, and it will again be subject to burning like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. We've been reminded earlier uh, of the eternal, uh, of the hope of resurrection, and therefore that standing firm in the Christian life is standing firm in His grace, in His gospel, and that we stand firm knowing there is work to do because of this eternal perspective that this is not our home, our lives are passing away, and therefore we labor not in vain. And yet it begs the question as we live this day in, day out life, Uh, of how do we tether our faith to truth? 
How do we stay rooted in the gospel and continue to abound in good works? What else does Scripture say that aids our hearts to, to stay faithful? And there's lots of different passages that, that we could look to for this. But for the rest of our time this morning, I actually want to look at the life and ministry of the prophet Isaiah to answer this question. Now, we understand we are not prophets. Um, We do not have the same ministry as Isaiah does. But I think there are some lessons from Isaiah's context and life that are significant for us to learn from him how he stood firm and stayed faithful for how we can stand firm and stay faithful. And even to couch it in this way, what sustains a life for the long haul? What will allow you and me not simply to be faithful for today and tomorrow, but for the next five years, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, if the Lord should tarry and the Lord would allow? What allows one to stay faithful for a lifetime? Circumstances come and go, people come and go. The nature of our hearts, we ebb and flow with ups and downs. What is it that will allow you to be faithful, not just today, but 30 years from now? I want to look at two lessons from the life of Isaiah's life and ministry. And as I mentioned, we're going to spend the majority of our time looking at the context surrounding his life and ministry, and then we will take a brief look back at Isaiah 6. So, first lesson from Isaiah's life and ministry. Be aware of spiritual danger. Be aware of spiritual danger. Now, on the surface, we are very aware, okay, I am weak and I have certain uh, temptations that, that, that plague my soul, and, and we talk maybe about the big sins that we struggle with, and certainly we need to fight those with faith. But, but there's also the, the lurkings of danger that come into the crevices of our heart that often we are unaware of. And in fact, in many ways, it's the covert things in our heart, not just the overt things in our heart that are the most dangerous. Well, let's look back. Isaiah 6.1 gives us some context. In the year of King Uzziah's death, this gives us one of the few chronological markers in the book of Isaiah. He's establishing the beginning of Isaiah's ministry in the year that King Uzziah died. We'll go back to Isaiah 6.1, and I'm going to just let you know ahead of time, um, we're going to give your fingers a workout this morning, okay? We're going to do some Bible flipping. Um, And so uh, I'll make sure to give you time to get there, but we're going to be moving in a bunch of different places um, to set the stage for this. Isaiah 1.1 takes us back to the general time frame in which Isaiah ministered in a larger perspective. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, concerning Judah and Jerusalem, which he saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. And if you're familiar with the prophets at all, we see statements like this often in the prophets. They, they give us a historical time frame for when these prophets ministered. He prophesied during the reign of Uzziah through the kingship of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. This places Isaiah's ministry around 739 to 686 B.C. Isaiah had a long season of ministry. Decades. And a couple things to note, just as as historical reminders. You remember that it was 722 B.C. when Assyria came over and took over the northern kingdom of Israel. That happened during Isaiah's ministry. And so Isaiah's ministry, as he ministers primarily to Judah, while he is ministering, the northern kingdom is going into captivity. Judah is watching this happen. 
And do you think after Assyria took over all the land up there, they were content saying, oh, you southern king of Judah, we'll just let you be. No, they were coming for Judah as well. This would be like, for, for us, Canada being taken over maybe by North Korea or, or when ISIS was significantly a threat and, and there was nothing the U.S. could do about it. That, that's Judah compared to Assyria as Assyria takes over. This is a dangerous time. And as Isaiah spends considerable time calling Judah to trust in the Lord because of Assyria, the question comes up, would Judah return and trust in the Lord or would they go the way of big brother to the north, Israel? There's almost a sense of, look, Israel's in captivity. Why? For her sin. You have sin. Will you learn? Will you listen? And even as we dive into this, I think that same question that confronts Judah confronts us. Why do we have history recorded in Scripture? Why do we have examples? Will you learn? Will you learn? Will we listen, knowing of the dangers that that our heart are prone to face? You see, Judah should have learned from Big Brother up north. And Isaiah was not the first prophetic voice to Judah, nor would he be the last. God had already sent Hosea and Amos to speak to the northern kingdom. The northern kingdom did not listen. God had already sent Joel to Judah many, many years earlier, but Judah had completely disregarded that. During Isaiah's ministry, Micah would be sent, saying very much the same thing as Isaiah uh, says to the southern kingdom of Judah. And more prophets would be sent even after their rebellion continues. What I want to do, let's back up, and I want to look at Isaiah's ministry to see what was going on in Judah with why God sent him. For we're not only giving a general time frame of his ministry, Isaiah 6.1, but we're given, in a sense, when he ruled and reigned during these kings. And while the exact details of the significance of this date and why it's mentioned in 6.1 is somewhat debated, the emphasis helps us set the stage for everything that takes place in the book of Isaiah. So, Isaiah's ministry begins when? During the reign of Uzziah. Now, so we aren't confused, Uzziah, same as Azariah, okay? Same, same guy, Uzziah, same as Azariah. 2 Kings refers to him as Azariah. 2 Chronicles 26, and here in Isaiah 6, refers to him as Uzziah, same man. Uzziah reigned from 790 to 739 B.C. So during his reign, Assyria had not taken over the northern kingdom. But things were beginning to crumble very quickly up north. And in the south, while everything seemed stable during Uzziah's reign, cracks were beginning to show. Uzziah, as some of you are aware, had a long and prosperous reign. And for the most part, there was great stability in the southern kingdom. And from a human standpoint, when Uzziah was king of Judah, things were good. But, and as every parent knows, when your child comes in and says, how was school today? And your child says, it was good, but there's something else going on. Maybe things are not as good as it seems. Things were good, but little compromises were being made in the southern kingdom. As you know, there were good kings and there were bad kings. The people followed the ways of the kings for the most part. Uzziah is actually considered a good king for the most part. He reigned 52 years. He had a long and very prosperous reign. 
But, and this is where we're going to start a Bible flipping, go back to 2 Kings chapter 15. So I want to show you the context in which Isaiah comes onto the scene. 2 Kings 15, verse 1. Second Kings 15.1, in the 27th year of Jeroboam, king of Israel, that's northern kingdom, Azariah, that's our guy, Uzziah, son of Amaziah, king of Judah, became king. He was 16 years old when he became king, and he reigned 52 years in Jerusalem, and his mother's name was Jechaliah of Jerusalem. Verse 3, he did right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father Amaziah had done. Verse 4, if you have the NAS, only, nevertheless, as the ESV would say, the New King James Version, except the Net Bible, but. Things are really, really good, but, but there's an exception. Only the high places were not taken away, the people still sacrificed and burned incense on the high places. Now, when we hear high places, we don't, we don't think much of that. We think of, a, of an elevated piece of land. In Florida, everything's flat. In fact, Julie and I laugh. In, in Florida, there's a little overpass, and as you go over the overpass, it says hill. That's how flat Florida is. It's, it's refreshing to come somewhere where there's hills. Uh, high places, these are elevated areas, but more specifically, in light of that, there were elevated areas uh, where worship took place, specifically for, for the Canaanites and Canaanite deities. This was paganism. These were places of worship inherited from Canaanite worship. And, and while then when Israel would worship there, it wasn't full-out Canaanite worship, they had been specifically told in the law not to worship there. The Mosaic Law, Deuteronomy 7.5, 12.3, Numbers 33.52, specifically prohibited such use of pagan altars. Tear them down, dash them to pieces. I don't want any mixing of me with other religions. And boy, that is a good reminder for us today. We're so much today in Christianity is, I'll take a little Yahweh, I'll take a little Bible, and I'll bring in worldly philosophies. God says, I'm not interested in sharing. I don't share my glory. I don't share my worship. I'm not interested in human concoctions of worship. I'm not just another God. Worship is on my terms, not yours. I'm worthy. And yet, this little this little compromise had long been a struggle for Judah. So go back a chapter, 2 Kings 14. 2 Kings 14, verse 1. In the second year of Joash, son of Joash, king of Israel, Israel king, Amaziah, who is this? This is Uzziah's dad. Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, became king. Verse 3, very similar. He did right in the sight of the Lord, yet not like David his father, he did according to all that Joash's father had done. There it is again. Only. But. The high places were not taken away. The people still sacrificed and burned incense on the high places. Go back to 2 Kings chapter 11. Verse 21. Jehoahash, or also Joash. This is Amaziah's dad. Uzziah's grandfather was seven years old when he became king. Jehoahash did right in the sight of the Lord all the days in which Jehoiada, the priest, instructed him. Here it is again. Only, 
The high places were not taken away. The people still sacrificed and burned incense on the high places. Listen, these were godly men. Three generations of alleged God-fearing men. Joash, Amaziah, now Uzziah. They all did what was right in the Lord's eyes. But there was a subtle and yet pervasive and dangerous compromise. Beloved, little compromises. Little compromises always lead to big problems. Always. Adopt and adapt. Instead of being completely set apart in their worship of, of God in the temple, they, they brought the world into their worship just a little bit. They, they compromised in their hearts. They compromised in their worship. They were holy There's no such thing as pursuing holiness with exception. You can't say, I want to be set apart to the Lord, but I'm going to hold on to this area of my life. I really want to be devoted to the Lord, but I'm going to compromise here. I'm going to give in here. I'm going to allow sin to remain here. There's no such thing as I want to honor the Lord, but I know I have that sin in my life, and I don't care about that little sin. I'm going to just let it go. No, little compromise always leads to big problems. And this happens so subtly in our hearts, the the subtle, casual, slow compromise. The, the heart begins to harden. We get used to that little pet sin in our life and we think that it doesn't have any consequences. All of a sudden, we no longer become sensitive to that sin and no longer sensitive to that sin spreads to other areas where we're no longer sensitive to other sin. Everyone's doing it. Go with the flow of the world. Senses dumbed down. Listen, if you walk on hot sand long enough, your feet will get used to it. If you walk in sin long enough, your, your heart gets used to it we become desensitized. Have we arrived yet? Are we perfect? No, this is the beauty of grace. But there's a big difference between identifying sin, wanting to fight sin, confessing, repenting of sin, and and then falling again and fighting in the Christian life because we're on this side of heaven versus I I know there's sin and I just don't care. I'm going to harden my heart. And maybe before we continue on with, with what's going on in Israel is there any sin you've become comfortable with? Is there any sin that, that you've become hardened to, uh, allowing in your life? We won't last long in standing firm if we are comfortable with sin. Once that leak starts, It spreads very, very quickly. Judah was on a slippery slope of compromise, and it had been on that slope for a while. They honored the Lord, but... Now, Uzziah was a godly man, but he came from this line of subtle compromise, and he joined the club. So go back to 2 Kings 15. Uzziah again, we saw this exception in his life, and we see... This brief description of his life, verse 5, the Lord struck the king so that he was a leper to the day of his death. And he lived in a separate house while Jotham, the king's son, was over the household judging the people of the land. So Uzziah came a leper. Why? What went wrong? You don't need to turn there. Listen, 2 Chronicles 26, 16. But when he became strong in his own heart, his heart was so proud that he acted corruptly. He all of a sudden was above the law. The little exception didn't apply to him. He, he thought he was beyond that, that he, he could live outside of that. 
And notice the explanation of this. And he was unfaithful to the Lord his God, for he entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense and on the altar of incense regarding his worship. In summary, he grew proud in comfort, the comfort of his success, the comfort of his position, and he took the worship of God into his own hands. More compromise. Yes, he was king, but he was not above the law of God. Thus, 2 Chronicles 26 explains, 26-21, King Uzziah was a leper to the day of his death, and he lived in a separate house, being a leper, for he was cut off from the house of the Lord. And Jotham the son was over the king's house, judging the people of the land. So God is actually gracious to Uzziah. There was compromise in his family lineage. There was compromise in his life, which led to more compromise in his temple worship. And God doesn't kill him. He was gracious. He makes him a leper. And as a leper, he was forced to be under the law that he had disregarded before in his temple worship. Wherever so subtly, godly leadership was doing what? Judah was following the way of big brother to the north. They were going the ways of Israel. They were departing from the Lord. Well, why is this such a big deal for Isaiah? Well, keep your finger in 2 Kings and go back to Isaiah 6.1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. God sends Isaiah to prophesy as Uzziah is on his deathbed. Why is he on his deathbed? For his sin. For his sin. And what's interesting is that in Isaiah 2, go back a few chapters, Isaiah specifically mentions pride as one of the reasons for coming judgment for all of Judah. In fact, look at Isaiah 2.6. You, the people, or God, you have abandoned your people, Judah, the house of Jacob. Why? Why was God against the southern kingdom of Judah? They had gone the ways of the north. What was going on in the southern kingdom of Judah? Following these little compromises. Because they are filled with influences from the east. And they are soothsayers like the Philistines. And they strike bargains with the children of foreigners. Basically what happens? Judah, yeah, we're worshiping God, but we're going to mix it with ways of the world. We'll take a little Philistine stuff. We'll take a little soothsaying stuff. Fortune telling ideas for the future. And we'll mix it all together and call it our worship for God. Verse 7. Their land has also been filled with silver and gold. And there is no end to their treasures. The issue is not wealth, but what's Isaiah pointing out here of why God is opposed to Judah? They were loving the things of the world. They were no longer interested in the things of God. Possessions and money and wealth was now dominating their mind. Continue on, verse 7. Their land has also been filled with horses, and there's no end to their chariots. What's he highlighting here? Listen, Judah, who do you need to trust so Assyria doesn't take over? Trust me. Who is Judah trusting in? Their armies. They were trusting in man. They were trusting in themselves. They're trusting in their chariots. So, what does he say? Verse 8 Their land, Judah's land now, as Isaiah comes on the scene, has also been filled with what? With idols. Yahweh is slipping out of the picture very slowly, very subtly, but in a most dangerous way. Idols are taking over. They worship the work of their hands, that which their fingers have made. Verse 9, so the common man has been humbled. Judgment's coming. And the man of importance has been abased, but do not forgive them. This is Isaiah appealing to the Lord. 
Enter the rock and hide in from the dust, from terror of the Lord and from the splendor of His majesty. Listen, judgment is coming and people are going to run and hide. What's going on in their heart? Verse 11, the proud look of a man will be abased. And the loftiness of man will be humbled. And the Lord alone will be exalted that day. Go over to verse 12. For the Lord of hosts will have a day of reckoning against everyone who is proud and lofty, against everyone who is lifted up that he may be abased. Verse 17. The pride of man will be humbled. We're walking with the Lord. But what is that? What was going on in Uzziah? What was going on in Israel? Or excuse me, in Judah? Pride. Pride. We're, we're beyond that. We're above that. Little compromises aren't that big of a deal. Sin was beginning to lurk in. And what does God say? The pride of man will be humbled. Pride is always spiritually deadly. It's deadly for the nation, it's deadly for the church, it's deadly for the individual. What destroys a church like yours and mine? It is possible that that pride could leak in in false doctrine. That that is possible. None of us are beyond that. But my guess is your church, like mine, I have so much accountability from the people in the church that if I preach something wrong, they're going to come to me with your open Bibles, just like you would do with Todd. The elders of the church... I've got a bunch of seminarians sitting there with their Greek Bibles open when I preach. I've got my alma mater, who men who I know and love, would call me and hold me accountable. I've got the seminary faculty that would be on the phone and in my office faster than you could tell. There's so much accountable doctrinally. That doesn't mean we can't go astray, but certainly there's accountability there. You know what one of the greatest dangers to churches like ours are? Pride. Self-will. Love of self, my preferences, little compromises, that's where we're in danger. For Judah, it was very subtle. This is exactly why Isaiah came. This is exactly what Isaiah is pointing out. God sends Isaiah to warn Judah, will you listen? You think you are not like Israel in the north. You're actually going the same path. You've given yourself to pride just like they did, and you are abandoning the true God. You think you're worshiping me, but you're not. But. We'll go back to 2 Kings 15. Uzziah, that's when Isaiah's ministry started. Uzziah's son, Jotham, takes over as king. What happens? Same problem. 2 Kings 15, 32. In the second year, Pelkah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel. Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, became king. He was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Jerusha, the daughter of Zadok. He did what was right in the sight of the Lord. He did according to all that his father Uzziah had done. Verse 35, only the high places were not taken away. The people still sacrificed and burned incense in the high places. He built the upper gate of the house of the Lord. He followed the Lord, but... Now then comes Ahaz, 2 Kings 16. And as you know, Ahaz, he goes off the deep end. He, he disregards everything. He, he was an absolute disaster. Verse 2 of chapter 16. Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. And he did not do what was right in the sight of the Lord his God, as his father David had done. But he walked in the way of what? Here it is, the kings of Israel. 
compromise is coming to full fruition with Ahaz. He even made his son pass through the fire. Most likely this is part of uh, worshiping the God of Molech, even human sacrifice. Thus, according to the abominations of the nations which the Lord had driven out from before the sons of Israel, I called you to remove yourself from them and you're bringing them back in. I saved you, Christian. I've saved you out of the world. Saved you out of your sin. You're no longer a slave to sin. Why are you inviting it back into the house? It's actually during this time, during Ahaz's reign, that the northern kingdom falls. Assyria comes in, takes over completely. You think Ahaz might have taken a hint. Reject God, it goes bad. Submit to God, we can trust in him. Ahaz does not take a hint. The next king, Hezekiah, does take a hint. In fact, he even goes as far to remove the high places. Notice how he is described, 2 Kings 18, verse 3. He did right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father David had done. He removed the high places and broke down the sacred pillars and cut down the Asherah. He also broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made, for until those days the sons of Israel burned incense to it. And it was called Nehushtan. He trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that after him there was none like him among all the kings of Judah, nor among those who were before him. For he clung to the Lord, he did not depart from following him, but kept his commandments which the Lord had commanded Moses, and the Lord was with him. Wherever he went, he prospered. He trusted God, not things of the world. He trusted God. He didn't try to compromise with Assyria. In fact, if you read Isaiah 36 to 39, which is a historical interlude in this prophetic book, we find out that he very intentionally trusts the Lord, which is why Assyria does not come in and take over the southern kingdom of Judah. But with Hezekiah, there's a but. And toward the end of his life, sadly again, there's compromise. His humility likely averted a Syrian takeover. This was in accordance with God's plan. But in Isaiah 39, we also see it recorded in 2 Kings 20, the Babylonians come knocking on Hezekiah's door. Hey, Hezekiah, let's make a deal. You know about Assyria. Why don't you make a deal with us and we'll call it good? So Hezekiah would not compromise with Assyria, but he did compromise with Babylon. 2 Chronicles 32, 31, even in the matter of the envoys of the rulers of Babylon who sent to him to inquire of the, uh, of the wonder of what happened in the land, God left him alone only to test him that he might know all that was in his heart. He basically opened the door, said, come on in, compromise, refusing to trust the Lord. Well, what happens after that? There'd be a few good ones, some really, really bad kings. The poison of compromise had set into the southern kingdom of Judah and it was taking over. This is why later when even King Josiah, who was a very, very godly king, found the word and shared it, while he showed repentance, the poison was so deep in the people that it was too late. They would not repent. It is in this setting that God sends Isaiah onto the scene. Lots of little compromise. Now, you remember Isaiah 6. Isaiah 6 is the commissioning of Isaiah. And the question always comes up, 
why do you see the commissioning of Isaiah in Isaiah 6 when, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, we've got five chapters in Isaiah from the prophet's words before we see the commissioning in chapter 6. And I don't know, that's always been a question in my mind. Why does he do it that way? Well, while chronologically chapters 1 to 5 would have been uttered after his commissioning, Isaiah is very intentional to record them before his commissioning to show why the commissioning is necessary. This is the state of Judah. This is what is going on. This is why in the year of King Uzziah's death, Isaiah comes onto the scene. And in fact, just to fill this out a little more, go back to Isaiah chapter 1. How bad had things gotten? Remember the context of the kings. Little compromises, little rebellion. The poison is seeping in. The first chapter of Isaiah, in many ways, is a summary of Isaiah, uh, of, of why Isaiah is sent and why Isaiah promises what he does. Look at verse 2, chapter 1. Listen, O heavens, and hear, O earth. For the Lord speaks. He speaks through Isaiah. Sons I have reared and brought up, but they have, notice the language, excuse me, revolted against me. This is not minor. These compromises, these sins, your sins, my sins, these are not minor things. The Lord does not turn a blind eye to them. In fact, notice the severity of the language. An ox knows its owner, a donkey its master, master's manger, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Alas, sinful nature, nation, people weighed down with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, sons who act corruptly, they have abandoned the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away from Him. You notice the accent of sin in these three verses. Verse 2, they have revolted against me. Verse 3, my people do not understand. Verse 4, alas, sinful nation, people weighed down with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, sons who act corruptly. They've abandoned, they've despised, they've turned away. Do, do you think the Lord wants Judah to understand how serious this is? Amen. <laughs> This is a, an intentional explanation to the state in which Isaiah comes. He's piling on description after description. And what makes it worse? Sons I've reared and brought up. You're my people. I've chosen you. I've rescued you. Do you not remember the Exodus? Do you not remember my promise to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob? I've made you my people. Why are you doing what you're doing? An ox knows its owner, a donkey its master's manger, but Israel does not know. My people don't understand. Even dumb animals know its master, and Israel has rejected their father. Verse 4 of chapter 1. Why is this such a big deal? They have abandoned the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. If you're just reading chapter 1, you can glaze over that. But if you're familiar with Isaiah at all, this becomes a dominant theme. The Holy One of Israel. 25 times mentioned in this book. The Lord God is the Holy One. Isaiah 12, 6. Cry aloud and shout for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. 
Isaiah 45, or excuse me, Isaiah 40, 25, to whom then will you liken me that I would be his equal, says the Holy One. Isaiah 43, 15, I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. Isaiah 42, 8, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven Asians. Why? Because I am the Holy One. Isaiah 43.11, I, even I am the Lord, and there is no Savior besides me. Isaiah 45.5, I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I am holy, perfectly pure, set apart. And listen, when God looks at His glory, He says this, I don't share. I don't share my glory with anyone, ever. I'm not interested in half-hearted worship. I see those little compromises. I'm not interested in you just going through the motions, showing up the church, reading your Bible, allowing information to go in your head. No, 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 no. I'm not interested in just playing a game. Judah, you, you are not deceiving anybody. Most of all, you're not deceiving me. He does not share his glory. He cannot tolerate sin. He's not appeased by half-hearted man-made worship. He's not interested in compatibility with the ways of the world. He has gloriously saved His people for Himself, set them aside to live for Him, to know Him, and to enjoy Him. His terms, His ways, for His glory. Can we say it in a very simple way? For Judah, for us in the New Testament church, how the believer lives his or her life is not up for debate. God has said, this is why I've saved you. This is, this is to what I have saved you for. And he's not interested in us keeping high places. Listen, Lord willing, there's no Ahazes here. My guess is if you're at church on a Saturday morning, you aren't thinking of going off the deep end here. But do you have any high places in your life? I any areas of little compromise? To go, ah, that's not that big of a deal. That, that, that pet sin, that lingering issue. And it's your pride that says, no, I don't want to get help. I don't want to repent. I want to hold on to it. Do you, do you not understand the danger when we are not aware of those subtle sins in our life? See, learn, be warned where they lead. Are there any high places when sin comes knocking at your door, what do you say? You know what we need to say? By the grace of God, when sin comes knocking at my door, get off my porch. I'm the Holy One. He owns me, not you. You are not welcome here. Ever. And when sadly we do creak the door open and we let it in and the Lord graciously exposes that through His Word, what? We confess and repent. That's where our identity is in the Gospel, not in our self-righteousness. What's the theme of Isaiah? He's holy, yes, but He's also a Savior. God will step in save despite man's sin. Ultimately, it is these compromises these dangers why god brings judgment on israel why he brings judgment on judah he humbles them he brings them low in order to save the remnant this is the danger 
the danger of spiritual compromise. This was a sin that was knocking at the door. Okay, with that context in mind, go back to Isaiah 6. Like I said, that's where we're going to spend the majority of the time. We need to beware of spiritual danger. This is the scene that Isaiah stepped into. It was, it was danger all over the place. And so, what sustained Isaiah for five decades of ministry in the midst of all of this sin? Because that's the question we're asking for our own soul, right? Okay, I want to be faithful. I need to be aware of compromise sin. How do I stay faithful and stand firm? And this is where I think Isaiah 6 is so helpful to understand Isaiah's ministry, not just his calling. So beware of spiritual danger. Second, be awed by God's holiness. Be awed by God's holiness. Isaiah's testimony in Isaiah 6 becomes the bedrock for his message and his ministry. And Isaiah's testimony about God, this understanding of God, is the bedrock for allows us to stand firm and stay faithful. And we are not going to be able to dive into all the details here. Like I said, I want you to see this in context. You, I'm sure Todd's preached on this. You can go read books on this and go into the details, but see this in its larger context. Verse 1, in the year of King Uzziah's death, that's when Isaiah's coming. That's when God sends him. I saw the Lord sitting on a throne. Here is the vision that God gives Isaiah as he's going to send him. I saw the Lord sitting on a throne lofty, exalted with the train of his robe filling the temple. First thing that overwhelms Isaiah's mind is God's greatness, his transcendence, his, his majesty. There's, there's awe. He's on a throne. His robe fills the whole temple. He's called Lord here, Adonai, Sovereign One. And you notice the scene, what's going around to accent this majesty. Seraphim, angelic beings. And when we think of angelic beings, we often think of, you know, cute little white angels with two little wings. Um, seraphim, fiery ones. And you notice they don't just have two wings. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two, he covered his face. And with two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. What? They are in the presence of a holy one. And that's exactly what they say. And one called out to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. He is so holy that we cannot be even on the ground so we fly. We cover our face and we cover our feet. That is how majestic our God is. Everything falls into perspective. The holiness of God, the glory of God, the very things Judah had forsaken. Little compromise, not being set apart, not understanding his purity. And the foundations, verse 4, of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. And then I said, woe is me. I'm ruined. When one has a right view of God, there is only one response, humility. I'm ruined. I see my sin. I see, I see the little sins. I see the big sins. I, I look around and I see the sin. And there's no arrogance if I'm better than others. No, I'm crushed in it. My God. Me. This is Isaiah's encounter. 
Woe is me, for I am ruined because I'm a man of unclean lips, representative of the entire nature of his being, appropriate as a prophet. And I live among people of unclean lips. Their worship was falsity. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He understood very, very quickly, we don't come to God with anything to offer. We come desperately needy. Needy. Sinners trembling sense of being overwhelmed. And then this most glorious description of grace. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal. I look forward to asking Isaiah in heaven, what was that like? Uh, I see the creature. I see my God. I'm terrified of my God. And one of his creatures is coming towards me with a burning coal. Which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips and your iniquity is taken away. Your sin is forgiven. The, the, the beautiful uh, symbolic picture of cleansing. Ultimately, you follow Isaiah. That's why a suffering servant must come not only to reign but to save. Forgiveness. This is Isaiah's commission. This is his calling. This is what is impressed upon his mind. Verse 8. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I, send me. Go tell people about me. But here's the problem. Often in our reading Isaiah 6, we stop there. And Isaiah 6, 8, and, and rightly so, becomes that great missions verse. God, use me. Send me to the world. Let me see like Nineveh-type like revival. God, use me. I'll do whatever I want. Don't stop reading in verse 8. Do you realize what Isaiah was being asked to do? Verse 9. He said, go tell this people, keep on listening, but do not perceive. Wait, wait, wait a minute. Listen, but don't understand. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Render your hearts of, or excuse me, render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull and their eyes dim. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts and return and be healed. Wait a minute, God, don't you want them to return? Yes, he does, but on his terms, not theirs. Isaiah is sent to preach for five decades to a people that will not repent, that will not listen, that don't fill the church, where there's persecution, where it's uncomfortable, when it's not easy, there's no pats on the back. This is the life and ministry Isaiah faced. Verse 11, and I said, Lord, how? How long? And he answered, until cities are devastated and without inhabitant, houses are without people, and land is utterly desolate, judgment is coming. The Lord has removed men far away and forsaken, forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. Yet there will be a tenth portion in it, and it will gain again be subject to burning like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. There will be a remnant but judgment's coming. Fifty years of hard ministry and ultimately Judah would fall. 
what is it that will keep you and me faithful when persecution comes? It might happen in our lifetime. It might not. It might have overt forms. It might have covert forms. What will keep you faithful when everything around says compromise? When there is no fruit, when it is not easy? When the world, just as it's screaming at Christianity, and it says, you know, let's meet in the middle. We'll compromise here, compromise there. Let's meet in the middle and call it good. You can have your Christianity, but not the way the Bible says. We'll just mix and match and call it something else. What keeps you faithful then? Listen, when marriage is hard and the world says, listen, give it up, get divorced. What stays the course then? As we talked about earlier, all of those circumstances, all of those hard things, when you go, listen, I want to stay the course, but it's hard. What sustains then? When when the trials come, when when the world mocks you, when Satan tempts you and, and causes doubt to enter in, when the lures of the world of comfort and ease, what will keep you and me from high places? I think this is where the example of Isaiah is so helpful. What sustained Isaiah for five decades to stand firm and stay faithful in that? In this context, he understood the holiness of God. He understood the holiness of God. We speak of the holiness of God. We can define the holiness of God. Some of you can give verses about the holiness of God. You can give definitions. We hear about it in systematic theology classes. It is one thing to intellectually understand that. It's another thing to be crushed by it. To be humbled by it. To say, I live every day, every week, every year, every second in the presence of a most holy God that the triune Godhead receives all worship. Holy, holy, holy. That is our God. And when God is rightly seen, how dare could we compromise? But as soon as God gets belittled, what happens? The crevices leak in in our hearts. Compromise. We forget who God is. Pride grows in our heart and all of a sudden standing firm and staying faithful disappears. But when Isaiah understood who God was, when we understand who God is, what? God, I'm going to stay the course. It's not easy. It's not easy on this side of heaven. But I know who my God is. And I trust in his words. I'm going to follow his commands. Look at what he has done for me. I will humbly submit to him. You know, in many ways, it's very similar to what we just heard in a most precious testimony. What what, what sustains through whatever that might be in your life? It's your view of God. It's my view of God. Not simply in giving a road answer, but in the depths of your soul, surrendered in worship, no high places, no compromise. God, I'm yours. Our God is more holy than we think. He is more wrathful than we think. And he is more gracious than we will ever understand. And if you are a blood-bought Christian today, that is your. He's called you. He saved you. 
You know him. Live for him. In light of who he is. Aware of spiritual danger, yes. But in awe of his holiness. That's how we stand firm. That's how we'll stay faithful. Not ourselves, but a right view of him. Can we pray to that end? Lord, we are sobered. We are convicted. We are encouraged to know that the, the God that Isaiah encountered is the God that we are praying to this very moment. The one that we are about to sing to. The, the one that we have just heard about in your word. The one who has saved us to yourself and, and set us apart for yourself. And, and Lord, we confess, maybe you've even exposed this morning, we have high places. There's been compromise in our hearts. Maybe it's a hidden action. Maybe it's a, a thought pattern of thought. Maybe it's the, the covert nature of subtle pride and arrogance. Lord, whatever it is, you're, you know it. And Lord, we ask that you would reveal it, not that we live in the misery of sin and guilt, but that we repent and confess and we put our hope back in you. We can't stand firm and stay faithful by ourselves. And with that, Lord, would you use your word in our hearts to give us a right view of you? This church would be bolstered by faith and a love of the biblical God, not, not any idol. For, for this church, for my church, Lord, that, that we would have a right view of you, that truly you would be the one we seek to glorify, that we would understand you don't share your glory. And Lord, would that start in our individual hearts and would that overflow into our corporate life together? Would we be people that love you and know you? And therefore, delight in serving you because you are our God, whatever it is that the future might bring. Lord, we live like Isaiah, knowing and loving your holiness. And with the testimony of our lives, faithfully reflect that. Lord, not for us, but for your glory, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon presented at Maranatha Bible Church in Comstock Park, Michigan, where we exist to display God's glory, declare God's truth, delight in God's Son, and disciple God's people. No part of this digital file may be reproduced or distributed without prior written consent. For permission, go to mbcmi.org.